encourage everyone this morning. We're be in Psalm 13 for our scripture reading this morning. If you want to open your Bibles, I'd encourage you to continue to pray for one another and uh, pray for the past weeks of summer ministries. Don't forget <laughs> the camps that have occurred. Ladies are just back from Illinois, and Emily said they had a good week, um, though she brought her coffee to make sure she could get through the morning this morning. And so pray as the word went out. Let's not forget to pray for those who heard the word. And uh, we look forward as well to Bible camp up in northern Minnesota. The junior week that Grace and Truth Bible Church holds begins today and senior week next week. And I'll be speaking at senior week, and I would cover your prayers for that week as well. So keep these young folks in our prayers. So much, um, so many young people first come in contact with a God who loves them, created them, who wants to know them, wants to save them through these children's ministries. So they're very important. So keep them in your prayers. Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and hear me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed against him. Let those who trouble me rejoice when I am moved. But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today and are truly rejoicing in your salvation. Father, thank you that as our God, as our creator, Father, you, you loved us so much that you sent your only son to resolve our greatest problem, our greatest need, and that was for the forgiveness of sins and, the, and an escape from eternal hell. And Father, we're thankful that the Lord Jesus bore our hell on the cross, paid our sin penalty, and Father, provided for us forgiveness. And as a resurrected Savior, Father, he gives us new life, abundant life. You give us bountifully in our lives, Father, and we're thankful for that, and we rejoice in our Savior today. And Father, it's an amazing thing to recognize that an almighty God, a creator who transcends this creation, Father, is a personal God. You are involved in our lives. You love us intimately, Father. And, and you not only have provided for us salvation, but you've given us acceptance in Christ and the beloved one. You've blessed us with all spiritual blessings. Fathers, we're so thankful for all you've given us in your grace. Along with that, Father, you walk with us. You provide for us. You guide us in, in life, help us navigate uh, through the challenges and difficulties of life, Father, because you are a present help in all our troubles. We're thankful for many promises you have given us to reassure us of your presence and of your love and of your care. Things give, w Promises given to provide wisdom and comfort and courage and strength, Father, and we're thankful for those. And today, as we open your word, may we discover more of all you provided for us in your grace, because you, as our Heavenly Father, wants our best. You want to help us through life. And we're so thankful for that. And so prepare us to hear your word today, Father. May we be willing to sit at the feet of your word and, and respect your word as, as eternal word, as a living word, as the words of our very God. And Father, may our faith then be founded not upon man's opinion or ideas, but upon thus saith the Lord. So be our teacher and guide today. And Father, we do pray for those who are away from us. Some are traveling. Some are involved in other activities, Father, that you would watch over them. And may they be enjoying you today. May, may they be drawn to you today. And for those who are especially going through struggles and challenges and difficulties of various forms in their lives, Father, they would look to you as, as, as a present God and a present help, and you would, that you would especially minister to them today. 
And Father, we pray for our missionaries. Father, we pray for our translators, those involved in church planning work, Father, and those in, involved in various ways, uh, Father, to minister to the unsaved, Father. We just pray that you would watch over them, forward their work, Father, uh, provide their needs, and use your word mightily in hearts and lives that many more might come to know the Lord Jesus as Savior. And Father, we pray here as we conduct Sunday school and as we enjoy time in your word together, Father, may your teacher be our guide, and may you be glorified through the things we learned, and may you take the things we learned today and implant them into our lives by your grace and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> you turn back to Genesis 25, where we returned to the book of Genesis last week. We had previously studied up through the person of Abraham, and we picked it up last time with his son Isaac. And we may, you may ask why these folks are so important in the scriptures as we recognize just briefly that it's through them that God promised to bless the world. And that blessing, that seed that would bless the world was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. It is the Jewish family that provided for us a savior. And that's why biblical history follows the Jewish family because it is through them God expressed his program for humanity and his plan for them, and especially our plan of redemption and salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was a promise God made to Abraham, and it was reaffirmed to Isaac as well. And it was through Isaac his seed was to be called. And so Isaac, God reaffirms that promise, and we'll see that yet in our future as we continue in our studies. But here we're just going to read a few verses in Genesis 25 to pick up the story of Isaac in verse 19. We are told, this is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, of the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, it is, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, two people shall be separated from your body, one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. And so when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were born twins in her womb. And the first came out red, he was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. Afterward his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate up his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And so here we're introduced to the genealogy of Abraham from Isaac, uh, from Abraham to Isaac and Rebekah to Esau and Jacob. But we begin this section here in, at a time when Isaac and Rebekah were waiting for children. Now, they had known, as we know the story now as you read the history, that God had promised that they were going to have children because the seed was to come through them. But here it was, 20 years they'd been married, and they had no children. And they may have been confused as, what's God doing in their lives? You know, God made a promise, and it's normal to have children, but 20 barren years would cause a person to be, uh, to be despairing and discouraged and confused in their lives. But we know that God often allows difficult and challenging circumstances for his glory and our good. And that's part of this story. 
And sometimes God takes the challenges in life that we experience and use them to teach us things and use them for his glory. I'm reminded of the psalm and the psalmist in Psalm 119 in verse 67. He says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And so that affliction was part of his training to keep the word of God. Then just a few verses later in verse 71, he says, it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. And so, so trials, challenges, difficulties, affliction gives us the opportunity to learn that the word of God works, that God's promises are real and they're relevant in our lives. Now what we see here is somewhat of a repeat, if you know the story. In Abraham and Sarah, they were childless, even though God had promised to build a great nation, and they were childless for years. In fact, they didn't have children until they were past childbearing years. And God did that so that, at least for one reason, so that the whole world would know that this child was a child given of God. It was given in his power. And that, is, that, and that God keeps his promises and nothing is too hard for the Lord. Well, Isaac and Rebekah are in the same position here once again. A history repeated itself in this case. And, and they're in distress. At least Isaac is. You know, you know Isaac, in, in spite of these things, is, is an encouraging example. When we revisited him in chapter 25 last week, we found him meditating. He's spending time with the Lord in the field. He, was, he took some time out to meditate and think about the things of God, maybe the word of God and the goodness of God. Well, here in the middle of their distress, in this chapter, we find that Isaac pleads with the Lord in verse 21. He, he, he turns to the Lord in prayer. You know, sometimes in our lives, God is our last resort instead of our first resource. And, God, and yet, as Christians especially, we must remember that God is there for us. He promises to take care of us, and he needs to be our first resource when we run into difficulties and challenging in life, because that's life. We live in a broken world, and in various ways and capacities, maybe not just like Isaac and Rebecca, we are going to be put in situations that bring despair, brings discouragement, brings broken hearts in our lives. And we need to follow Isaac's example because he pleaded with the Lord. I like that word, he pleaded. Indicates he poured out his heart. This wasn't just an empty, shallow prayer request that he repeated quickly. This was a bearing of his soul. It was an emptying of his heart. It was inviting God to, or asking God to deal with the thing that, that most troubled him. And that was because his wife was barren. You know, God invites us to come to him with, with our needs. And that's the amazing thing about our God. As Almighty God, He is a personal God. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, it tells us why the Lord Jesus came into humanity, and that's so He could be personal, so He could relate to us. In verse 17, it tells us that in, in becoming a man, He put Himself in a position that He could provide propitiation for the sins of the people, is the words the Bible uses. The word propitiation means a satisfactory payment. One of the reasons Jesus came is to be a man so that he could die for man. Another reason in verse 18, the next verse says, he came because he experienced life as we experience it so that, quote, he is able to aid those who are tempted or tested. He can relate to us. He experienced life. And that's why Jesus came. In the first instance, he came to offer us, to provide for us salvation. And that's the first Offer he, offering he makes to mankind to get to know their God, to come near their God, is to come to Jesus as Savior. I'm reminded of the last verse of the Bible, the Revelation, not the last verse, the last chapter, where 
the Bible says this, and the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. God invites the unsaved to come because that's man's greatest needs. Let's go to Romans chapter 3 for a moment, if you would, please. Let's go over to the New Testament. Let's look at Romans chapter 3. And Romans chapter 3 is educational for us because it teaches us something we're not, mankind isn't aware of. Now, we might be aware of that there are good people and bad people and evil people. You know, the Bible calls evil, badness, sin, doesn't it? Sin is to miss the mark. It's to come short of God's glory, God's perfection. And, but ultimately, sin is against God. But what the mankind doesn't often understand is what's described here. In verse 10, it says this, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. They all have all turned aside. They are together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Well, that's pretty graphic, isn't it? And descriptive. And kind of states it as it is. And it's like, that's bad news. Well, it is bad news. Well, why does God describe mankind like that? There's none righteous, no, not one. There's no one good. No one who understands, no one who seeks God. And it's because of sin in our lives. Later in chapter 5, verse 12, we're told that through one man sin entered the world. And death became, a, became as a result of sin. And we know that one man was Adam. When he disobeyed God in eating the fruit, he introduced to the human race sin. And mankind now are born on a path of sin and separated from God. And this is man's greatest problem, is that they are alienated from God. They don't seek God. They don't know God. There's none who does good. Well, someone might say, well, isn't that why we do our best to get to heaven then? Because, because the basic philosophy of mankind, especially religious, religious mankind, is that the way you get to heaven is by being a good person. Well, look at verse 19. Jump down ahead to verse 19. It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. Now, the law there could represent the Ten Commandments. And it says to those who, who think that they got to keep the Ten Commandments to go to heaven, or you could replace that, any good works program. But notice it says that. Here's the purpose of the law, that every mouth might be stopped and the whole world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. You know, when God holds up his righteous standard before mankind, we find, as verse 23 says, down here a couple verses, we come short. The law declares us guilty. It's like the stop sign or the speed limit sign. You know, you can be driving along and, you know, at, at, a, at a presumed speed and you think you're doing the speed limit and all of a sudden you go by a speed limit sign and you're way over the speed limit. And what happens? It, it just immediately you feel guilty. It declares your guilt. And that's, the, that's, the, that's what the law did to mankind. God's righteous standard helps us to realize that we are sinners before God. We, we don't keep his standard. Even though we might be think we're good and in man's relative righteousness, there's good people and there's bad people, but before God, all have sinned and come short. And so when mankind thinks that his good deeds gets into heaven, we find out that that's not Bible. That's not God's program. God says that's the problem is, is that the law, the, the principles of God, the teachings of the Bible declare us guilty, and by the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified. You see, God looks at our standing before him in illegal terms, often in the scripture, doesn't he? And he says, in order to be fit for heaven, to be justified, we have to be declared righteous. 
We have to become as good as God is. We have to become cleansed from our sin and be, and be righteous in order to, to enter a righteous, holy environment. And, that, and that's why this goes on in verse 21 and with the word but. You know, you know I love that, that word because that usually means God's getting involved with man's condition. But now, what's, what's now? Well, Jesus had come and died on the cross and rose again. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Here's a different program. Man's program is getting to heaven by being a good person. God's program is a righteousness apart from being a good person. God's righteousness apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. That's the Old Testament. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there's no difference. That's God's program. That righteousness is a gift. It's the righteousness of God given when a person puts their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Because the next verse says, For all have sinned, there's that verse, and come short of the glory of God. But verse 24, We're being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Freely. God justifies us freely. It's a free gift. When God gave us Jesus as Savior, He gave it to us freely. The next verse says, Whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood. There's that word again, propitiation, a satisfactory payment for sins. You see, that's the problem between mankind and God. There's this barrier of sin. There's this problem of sin that we are under the condemnation of sin. We are sinners by by birth. We are sinners by nature. We are sinners by experience. And that's a problem. And God says that needs to be dealt with. And good works will never wash away sins. Church works will never wash away sins. Only one thing can take care of the sin problem, and that's a payment. There's a penalty that has to be paid. And Jesus paid that penalty, and it satisfied God. That's what the word propitiation means. God was satisfied that when Jesus died on the cross, when God laid on him the iniquity of us all, that we could be forgiven freely. It's not going to cost us anything. That's not going to cost us our best effort or good works. All God asks is our faith. We're justified freely by his grace. His grace means he provided freely and unconditionally. Who? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The redemption is a purchasing word, isn't it? Jesus purchased our salvation on the cross. He paid that penalty so you and I could be forgiven. And that's God's invitation. Later in chapter 10, verse 13, he says, Whosoever can call upon the Lord will be saved. And so the first thing God, <coughs> God in, in, first invitation God extends to his, his people, to, the, to mankind, is forgiveness. And the assurance of eternal life because our sins are forgiven. And then once you become a child of God, God says now we can get personal. Now we can, God invites us to walk in a close relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the way we enjoy that, much of the way we enjoy it is through prayer. Just like Isaac did. We discuss life with our Father. Because He's a Heavenly Father. He's a personal God. Our Lord Jesus personally cares for us. Some verses that remind us of that, Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why can we come boldly? Because once you become a child of God, you have a heavenly Father whose door is wide open. And he says, come, obtain mercy. That kind of has to do with forgiveness if we've messed up. And find grace to help. God will help. God says, come. Throughout the scriptures, that's the invitation to you and I. Instead of like sheep who have wandered astray, and when sheep wander astray, they get themselves in trouble, don't they? 
We come to him. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. For the, for the lost, that means the rest of forgiveness, the assurance that your sins have been forgiven. For the saved, it's the rest of God's care, that he will carry your burden and carry us through. Psalm 73, 26 describes it this way, My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, God promises to uphold us and strengthen us. On Wednesday nights, we just looked at this verse, 1 Peter 5, 7, casting all your care upon him, for he, for he cares for you. Casting. Many of you are fisher people. Maybe try to be politically correct. And you know what it means to cast. The only difference with this verse is that you take the, you take the handle off your reel. You cast it and then take the handle off. You don't reel it back in. You cast it upon God. That God says, you know, God, God says, I got big shoulders. Cast your burden on the Lord, the Bible tells us. And I like the last part of this verse, because he cares for you. That's the key point, isn't it? Because he cares. Many people in life have trouble <coughs> trusting um, the love of another human being because in many cases in this broken world, love has been violated, hasn't it? And has been broken. But you can find the consistent care of forever love with our, with our God. He'll never fail us nor forsake us. He cares for us. And so we can bring our cares to him. And so we see this throughout the scriptures, promise after promise that tells us to, to, to bring our burdens to the Lord, just like Isaac did, to bear our souls. And, and prayer is that expression, that personal intimate prayer with God is the expression of dependence upon him as our all in all, as the one who provides strength and wisdom and so on. It's a cry for help, isn't it? And so God wants us to be conversational with him. We sometimes think we have to be so formal in our prayers. But God wants us to just talk with him. You know, in one place in the, in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 5 is described as praying without ceasing. It doesn't mean you, you, know, you drive down the highway with your eyes closed and your hands folded, and you can create your own demo derby on the freeway. That just means that mentally you're conversational. You don't have to say it out loud, because he hears, he knows, he's everywhere. You just talk it over. That's what Isaac was doing. That's the delight of that simple verse in this passage is that you can plead with him. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke 18. Just while we're here in the New Testament, Luke 18. We find a good example of this. And here, because Luke 18, we find a gal who's got a problem and she wants it dealt with. Now, by the way. And... Verse 1 says, then he spoke a parable to them. He's going to tell them a story that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. That's the point of this story. He tells us the point, the moral of the story before he tells it. Men ought always to pray not to faint. Don't ever give up talking things over with God. Say, in a certain city, a judge who did not fear God nor regard man, but there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. And he for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Today we call it nagging. Nagging. He says, you know what? I give up. I wave the white flag. I don't want to see her coming through the door in my, my chambers again. He says, so I'm going to give her her request. Verse 6, the lesson. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. And shall not God avenge his own elect, his own children, who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. 
Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Good challenge, isn't it? God says, you know, I can outdo that judge. God's bigger than that judge. And what he's telling us is, is don't be afraid to repeat yourself. You can't wear God out. And God says, I hear. I'll answer. He doesn't always give us the answer we want, but God will hear. And what he says here in verse 8 is, is are we gonna, when he returns, are we going to find this kind of faith? that knows that God has the answers. Are we going to find faith that are people that are personal and conversational with God as they seek his direction in life? Well, God did answer Isaac's prayer, did he not? Um, he granted his request. In fact, he doubled them up. He gave him twins. Did even better than he expected. Gave him twins. And no doubt bringing much joy to his family. It took 20 years, um, but brought much joy to the family. But does God always say yes? No, he doesn't always say yes, does he? Sometimes he says no, and I want to look at a few examples this morning. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll look at three individuals, three highly respected, some very highly respected, individuals in which God said, no, I have a different plan. I have a different plan. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, the first one we're introduced to the Apostle Paul. And in verse 7, Paul says this, Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, that lest I be exalted above measure. And so Paul had some kind of affliction. And we could argue the rest of the year about what that affliction was. Some think they know, and I don't think the Bible says but it was an affliction that bothered him greatly. So verse 80 says, concerning this thing, I pleaded. Eh, same word. Interesting, isn't it? I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, my, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ rest, may rest upon me. God says, you know what? I have a different plan. Because usually when we have a problem, that's what we want it. We want it removed. We want it dealt with. And God says, you know what? I'm not going to remove it. He answered his prayer, but in a different way. He says, I'm going to teach you something instead. That my grace is sufficient. That you can lean on me for strength. Whatever this was, you can get, lean on me for the wisdom, for the strength, for the discernment to deal with it. I'm going to show you that I can sustain you. I can supply for you. I can uphold you. And so God had a different plan for Paul. God said no to Paul's request. He says three times, Paul said. And God says, no, here's my answer. My grace is sufficient. And God often does that in our lives. When we want something and we want it over with now, we, you know, we, we want to see the light at the end of the tunnel and we want it to come quickly in our trials. And sometimes God says, you know, I have a better plan. And that's where faith comes in, isn't it? To know, trust and know that our God knows better. He's a little smarter than we are. And he promises to care for us. And if he says no, it's for our good. That's where the faith comes in. Sometimes we don't like to see it because, you know, when I have a problem, I just want it gone. It's just like, you know, put me to sleep, awake me when it's over. That's what we want. And God says, no, you know what, I'm going to keep you awake and I'm going to sustain you through it. Let's look at another one. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 12 where we're going to look at David, another Old Test highly respected Old Testament saint. 2 Samuel chapter 12. Now, this is a long story, but David's 
We find, we find David here on his knees praying for his son that God said there was a reason, and that's a whole other message. God says, your son is going to die young. I'm going to take his life as an infant. And David was hoping that wouldn't happen. What distress that would bring to his life now was because of a discipline that God was exercising towards David. Well, let's pick it up in verse 15. And it says, Then Nathan departed to his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded, there's that word again, pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. I don't think he fell asleep, but I think he was praying. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day, that's a prayer vigil, on the seventh day, it came to pass that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him, that the child was dead, for they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do some harm. And when David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servant, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Well, that's quite the reaction, isn't it? Then he went to his own house, and when he had requested, they set food before him, and he ate, and so on. David accepted God's will. In fact, he worshipped. He worshipped the Lord. Now that might have to be related to the fact that this was an act of discipline from between David and God, but he accepted God's will. That's what it came down to. He prayed while he was alive. He had hope. Yet God said no, even though he pleaded with him. Seven days he pleaded with the Lord. But God said no, I have a different plan. And David accepted that plan. Let's go to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, a third one. I said some really highly respected. This has to do with the Lord Jesus. You may be thinking, God said no to the Lord Jesus. Well, maybe you're thinking of this, this account, but actually he did. Verse 39. Let's start with verse 38. Then he said to them, his disciples, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me or pray with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. He was talking about the cross, the anticipation of the cross. Verse 60, then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, what, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And a second time he went away and prayed the same thing. And he found them asleep again. And in verse 44, he prayed a third time. He prayed that he wouldn't have to endure the cross. The terror of the cross was, the, was bearing our hell on the cross. And it terrified him. And he said, if there's some other way, the problem was there was no other way. God says, this is the way we're going to have to deal with sins. A payment has to be made. Death has to be experienced. And Jesus was our substitute. And so Jesus surrendered to the will of his Father. He went to that cross. You know, 1 John chapter 5 describes to us that there is a oneness in prayer that that we can experience. It says this, now this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. And that's not a 
free ticket to uh, getting everything on your wish list, your Christmas list. This is, this is describing for us a oneness with the Lord Jesus. And that's really where our prayer emanates from. Because in a, when we walk with our God, there's an assumption that we want his will to be done in our lives. That should be normal for the believer, that we respect his word and his ways. And that's what we want to see happen in our lives, in our experiences, and on the earth. We want God's will to be done. In John 15, 7, the Lord Jesus talked about prayer where he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. There's this kind of oneness in prayer that God describes that when we align ourselves with God, when our hearts are in line with his, when our desires are in line with his, when our will is in line with his, when our pursuits are in line with his, we can be one with God and when we ask, we're asking what he wants in our lives. And yet still sometimes God says no, does he not? Turn with me, if you will, maybe one more passage, Psalm 13, our scripture reading this morning. You know, I think this helps us to understand that in our fellowship of prayer, conversation with our God, at times God says, you know, that's not my will. I have a better plan, a different plan. You just need to trust me. When we go to God, we really want our problems resolved. We want them removed. But we often find, when we're willing to pray, is we find peace in the storm. We find stability. We find that, that peace because we're reassured that God really does care for us. And here in Psalm 13, we read this. I'm not going to read it through again. You can have for your leisure. But David complains in the first half of this chapter, how long, how long, how long and is this going to happen? Is this going to go on? In David's case, it was the enemy, probably Saul he's referring to, but it could refer to you and I to anything that afflicts us in our lives. And then in verse 5, it's like there's a different writer. It says, But I have trusted in your mercy. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. What happened? This is like two different psalms. The first half is, a, is nothing but a complaint. Was really, he's bearing his heart. He's pleading with the Lord. How long am I going to have to endure this? And he prayed to God in verse 3. He says, enlighten my eyes. And I don't think he is he's saying, teach me something. We sometimes think of enlightening as enlightenment. Instead, it's a phrase, which means brighten my countenance, so to speak. That's a term that was used in the Bible. When someone had a bright countenance, you know all is well. You know, we read faces. Sometimes people's problems in their heart cast long shadows over their faces and you can see that someone is deeply troubled. But you can also see when someone's skipping along and life is good. And that's what David says. I want to skip along. I want to jump up and click my heels, lighten my eyes, make life bright again. And you know what? God answered that prayer. What happened between verse, between these two verses? Between verse 4 and verse 5? God answered his prayer. Well, how did he answer it? Because Saul didn't go away, ever David's opponent. God reassured David with his person, with his presence, and his promises. He says David instead rejoiced in God's mercy, verse 5. He rejoiced in God's salvation, and he recognized God's bounty. Three things that brought peace to his heart. And so he went to the Lord in prayer. He conversed with God. He pleaded with God. He wanted his problem gone. And God answered that prayer, but not in the way he thought. 
Instead, he brought, instead he brought this peace and the stability in the storms and the brokenness of life. And he, got, he was reminded of God's loving kindness, of his mercy. That's God's grace to us. Of God's salvation, God has proven that he could deliver and does deliver and he loves us enough to deliver us. And of God's bounty that God had dealt with him in the past bountifully, proving his love over and over and his faithfulness to David once again. And when David considered these things, what did he do? Verse 6, he sang. This went from pleading to singing. And because God answered his prayer by bringing his focus back to himself. You know, you find this often in the Psalms. When the first part of a Psalm, you find the writer bearing his soul, emptying his heart, almost complaining and in despair. By the end of the Psalm, they find the answer. And the answer is always the same place. And it's not with the removal of the problem. It's with a trusting God who can solve our problems. God reassured him. You know, this kind of stability that God offers his children to come to him, this kind of stability in the midst of our hurts and brokenness and challenges and storms in our lives, the kind of stability that's maybe expressed in peace and contentment and rest and joy, that can only occur when there is someone who is bigger than our problems who is willing to handle our problems. That's the only way it can occur. Because if we're left to ourselves, we're no match for our, for our struggles. We cannot change our circumstances. But there is someone who's bigger. And that's God himself. And he is willing and even eager to take our hands and to guide us through. God himself is that one. And he cares for you, as First Peter 5.7 says. You know, men and women are often steamrolled under the problems of life. Problems which overwhelm, destroy, leave us despondent. And that's the enemy's objective. But we have a God who is for us. And if God be for us, who can be against us? Problems which we cannot handle, God can and he will. When we're willing to trust him and find that stability in life. And so the Lord Jesus, the almighty God, the creator, the one who transcends creation, is both savior and friend. And he invites us to himself doesn't he? He calls us to find rest in him. For the unsaved, that means salvation. That means he invites people to come to him for the forgiveness of sins and the assurance of eternal life. For the saved, for the child of God, one who's trusted Christ, it means to get to know your friend. Find God as your guide and keeper and Lord in your life as a present help in trouble. Come. He wants us to come. And I'm reminded once again of Revelation 22, 17, where it tells us to taste or take of the water of life. And the spirit of the bride say, come. Let him who hears come. Let him who thirsts come. And whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. God freely in his grace gives us salvation. If you would come to him as Savior and trust Jesus as the one who died for you, God also wants to walk with you as your best friend a friend who sticks closer than a brother, a friend who will never fail us, and that's free. Just come, plead with the Lord. Carry, carry on a conversation with him and watch him fulfill his promises faithfully to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a loving God, and it's an amazing thing that our creator is a personal God that wants fellowship and company and, and when, with, with his children. 
And Father, thank you that you've given us this privilege of prayer, of conversing with you. Really the expression of united hearts as we, as we reunite with you and seek your will and way in, in our lives and in our world. Father, you promise to answer and guide us through life. And Father, at times when you say no, may we trust you. May we recognize that you know what you're doing. You are an almighty God, a wise God. You have our best in mind. And Father, may we be willing to trust you in those cases. May we take lessons even from, from Paul, who found your grace sufficient, and from David, who accepted your will, and from the Lord Jesus himself, who surrendered himself to the will of the Father. And Father, we are in good hands, and may we come. And Father, if there's any here this morning who do not know the Lord Jesus as Savior, may, may, may they even now put their faith in the one who loved them and died for them. And as your children, may we go our way singing, because you've got our backs, you care for us. For that we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.